Power, agency, and influence. Three big words that are laden with a lot of meaning and not always in a good way. My guest this week has been unpacking these words, both at an individual, group, and systems level, to see how they interplay together in order to help better decision-making in uncertain times. You'd think that you could boil them down into simple terms and that that would bring clarity. But in trying to follow a recipe, it's easy to forget that you can lose your bearings on what you're being framed by, and you can be caught by the very forces you are trying to break free of. I'm Julia Rebholtz. Welcome to Generative Leaders. One of the most, I think the, the interesting piece about when you introduce yourself is everyone's very bashful. And actually, as age and time goes forward, you introduce yourself differently. So when you're very young and you've, you've kind of like probably only got your, your exams, you tell people how wonderful your exams in. And as you go through uh, midlife, you tell them all about the, the great things you've done of, of M&A or investments or whatever. And when you reach the sort of um, the older segments of your life, suddenly it's how much time I dwell, think and reflect. Um, and I suppose if I look back, yes, you can look at achievements, but actually now what I look back at is what did the achievement teach me and how when I thought I was getting to the top and pinnacle of, of, of you know, commercial deals and, and whatever, actually what I realized they were just another base camp on a journey and I'm still on that journey. And yes, I've got some experiences behind me, but all experiences taught me is actually the experience creates a frame and what you've got to do is actually break the framing. And if you can't break the framing, the experience you've got just biases you to believing the same things. So actually, I've sort of reached a point where explaining who I am now is actually all I do is question myself. Well, that's a brilliant segue to ask you some questions then and, uh, and, and dive in. Obviously, one of the things that you do is you write a lot um, about these reflections and um, your upcoming book, decision-making in uncertain times seems so apt um, at the moment. And I'd love to hear about the genesis of this book and how you think it might relate to generative leadership. Yeah, let's come off, I suppose, an opinion on generative leadership, that it is this ability to generate. For me, and again, you know, it's one of these words that has um, many views and many opinions coming to it, but it's not about reimagining and reinventing because that just says going back over the old and trying to optimize for better efficiency and better effectiveness. It doesn't ask the question, where's the efficacy? Are we doing the right thing? Where to me, generative leadership starts from, are we doing the right thing? And if it starts from that question and that approach, you can then go and build something. You can generate something which is utterly new. I think so much of society is incredibly good at making sure we optimize for efficiency and effectiveness. And that's kind of like the question I was asking so many boards, but I was being asked to go and do board work, which is a first question which used to really annoy people, um, which is what are we optimizing for? And everyone would come out with their different opinions and I'd go around the table and then I'd ask the same question all over again. And then I'd ask it all over again. And usually, uh, at the point they're just about to kick me out, there was this ha-ha moment for a few people when they go, we ain't got a clue what we're optimizing for. And that was really helpful. And that's kind of like the genesis of the book, which started from a, a sort of piece of thinking going, 
um, how do you make better decisions in uncertainty? Because uncertainty is this place where you don't know what you're optimizing for. And actually what you think you're optimizing for is about to change. And therefore all of the experiences you've got probably are not going to help you in what you're about to do. Therefore you have to learn how to ask better questions. And if you have to ask better questions, what you have to do is unframe yourself. You have to be able to go, what is the question I'm not asking? And that's tremendously difficult. And then I get told off at this point usually because people say, what you're talking is philosophy and what you're talking is ethereal and it doesn't actually have a tangibility of, you know, what does somebody do tomorrow? But you're very good at doing what you need to do tomorrow. What I'm asking is what are you going to be doing in a year's time? Because actually, if you just carry on doing exactly what you are today and you just get more efficient at it, you haven't asked the question, are you doing the right thing? So that's where the genesis has come from. And that's effectively what the book is about, is, is how do we ask better questions? And Tony, I loved the opening of your book, which basically points people to the fact that this book doesn't have any of the answers that they're looking for. <laughs> what, a ter- what a terrible book <laughs> but it may have some very good questions that spark insights and realizations in the reader um and that's the whole purpose of the book is to spark something in the listener um that might have them reflect or do something differently in a way the, the way I, I write in the front of the book is that you know julia you are somebody who has incredible experiences And I don't want to take away from any of them because they're the right things. And I don't want you to think like me, but I want you to look at yourself like a flint, but also look at me like a flint. And when we hit each other, that should create a spark. And that spark is the really important thing, not that you've got experience and I've got experience because that's pointless. It's the spark between us, but the spark becomes really valuable when we give the spark fuel and oxygen because that creates fire. And the fuel in in so many ways is that thing of being able to share with a group of people. And this is what you're doing um, through, through the podcast is you take interesting ideas, you throw it out there, you get people to spark off it. That creates fuel, which allows people then to, to build fire. Because when you've got fire, you can refine things. And refining thing is the process. And to me, uh, if I want to ask better questions, it's very easy to ask questions. It's very difficult to ask better questions and you need fire people who spark off each other, who disagree, but do something through that process to create something which allows us to, to refine questions through fire. So the reason I want to talk to you and I want to listen to what you're doing and to all the people you interview is because that does exactly the same for me. It allows me to gain new insights. It allows me to gain new wisdoms that I didn't even know existed and me to actually refine my own thinking because that's the important part of where we are. it's so fascinating isn't it that that question that arises in you that you'd never thought of before it's such a fascinating wonderful thing when that happens yeah (laughs) Uh, even this morning so um we're talking on the 11th of october and this morning on radio four was um reverend dr sam sam wells and he on radio four did his thought for the day and it was just absolutely fantastic um, because one of the things he, he goes on about is that moment where the difference between anger and rage and how anger can be used in so many ways for good because it actually can have a purity of what you're doing. But when you hit rage and the red mist falls, as in, in the words he uses, that's when you lose control. 
and you don't know what you're doing and how in times of war and conflict it's right to be angry but when we hit rage we're in a very different place and actually it's the subtlety of difference in 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 the commercial world is is incredible because we don't even like the word anger yet therefore we lose passion we lose um so much idea and we want a culture which doesn't have things like passion and they don't have anger but we don't want it to have rage and you know, I was, I was listening to that going, how does that apply to the boardroom? How do we actually get people angry in the boardroom to create change? If you want regenerative leadership, actually, you kind of like need anger. But then people go, yeah, but I don't like that because then it, it introduces these ideas of conflict. Yet, you know, conflict is great if you go through refining fire. Yeah, we, we've we, somehow we've sort of got ourselves into a, a societal place where it's not okay to disagree, it's not okay to um, to have a conflict. And, you know, what, what I find really interesting, Tony, and I'd love your perspectives on this, is that when actually you can love someone and disagree with them and you can, you know, be with that person and thoroughly disagree but still hold them in the highest esteem, in my experience, that's where the greatest things come forward. I'd use the word greatest love. Because, again, in a way, the disagreement generates an anger and a passion. And not to try and persuade, and this is the opening, which you're, you're in, you know, we chat about two seconds ago in that book. It's where two heavyweights come together, but they create something new. And it's not about disagreeing for the sake of disagreeing. It's for the sake of actually, how do we refine something? How do we make something better? How do we move forward? How do we know if we're doing the right thing? And quite often we disagree for a very simple purpose, but I've got so much experience that this is the only thing that can be right. But you're so in, 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 indoctrinated in your own belief and your own self-assurance that what your experience has taught you is the right thing to do, that you can never break the cycle of just repeating the same things. Where somebody new comes along, introduces a new idea, and the first thing you, you go is that, that old antage of, um, if it's too good to be true, it is. And that just allows you a justification to say, well, I can just ignore it. And we're very good, to your own, you know, what you said, we're very good ignoring everything that we don't want to agree with. Which then leads us into not being able to make us better questions and, you know, escape our own framing and our own way of seeing the world. And, you know, part of that responsibility, I think, is the way we look at what we're incentivized by. And, you know, the economy in which we live has a methodology of creating incentives. The way you work and what you're paid with and the way you get received remuneration creates certain incentives and those incentives frame you completely. Yet we find it very difficult if somebody doesn't have those framings and wants to break it, therefore they ask different questions. And the crux of this is the chapter in the book that we're going to speak about, which is power, agency and influence. Those sitting with the power, those who have the agency and those who have the ability to influence create this ability to either hold the framing in place or to break free of it and uh, to start to ask better questions. So I'd love to hear your take on unpacking those different uh, dimensions and, and for us to explore them together. Yeah, I think the first part is, and I, I do this quite often, which is... Uh, the reality of complexity and wicked problems means that you have to come up with a simple linear narrative to explain something that's complex. But in explaining something simply, 
you actually lose the wickedness of the problem and the complexity of what you're trying to explain. And power, agency and influence kind of like don't exist, but we have them as words to try and articulate certain aspects. And they neither exist on their own or collectively, but they all exist in every single individual as a bit of a mess up. So you have to separate them out, explain them separately, but at all points understand that they exist collectively together in different ways in every single individual and therefore every tribe and therefore every clan and therefore every community and therefore every nation and therefore every organization and therefore every organization so it's it's useful to talk about them as separates and in different ways as separates but at no point can you sit there going well they are (laughs) it's that I I have to say that, I suppose, for myself, because elsewise you you get an injustice where somebody says, well, yeah, power doesn't really look like that. And I totally agree. agree. It doesn't. Um, So power is one of those aspects of life where everybody thinks they know what power is. And there is hundreds and hundreds of books on power. In fact, I didn't realize quite how many books there are on trying to define what power actually is. But most seem to come to a conclusion that power is that ability to have control at some form of level. And that is either through effectively violence or um, economic or emotional. The the range of how people get control is, is quite vast. And what they then choose to do with that power is quite vast as well. But it was just majorly the point that somebody has an aspect of control but it's more subtle than that. It's probably they just have slightly more control than you do. And, you know, that it's it's very much like a, you know, um, a, a dad and daughter relationship or with you, Julia, you or with one of your kids. At some points, the kids certainly have control. <laughs> and we have to accept that. No matter what we think, they have control of a situation. And they can manipulate the control of that situation incredibly well without understanding power, agency and influence in any way, shape or form. So there's something deeply within us as well, which which gets unpacked in it. So that's power. Um, agency, the ability to act, the ability to go and do something. So you have this choice that you can actually just go and do something. And this is, you know, taught so much in schools uh, as, as part of freedom, really, um, that if you want to go and do it, go do it. There's no choice in there if it's the right thing to do or what you're doing is going to harm anybody else or be benefit to all society. But basically, you have the, the power to be able to go and do it. Um, and power's the wrong word at that point. But you have the ability to go and do it. Uh, influence itself is somebody who is part of the cycle. And it's actually part of your own reading, knowledge, conversation. This has influence. Um And what influence does is say to the people with power, if you enact this policy, those with agency will keep you in power. So there's an axis that suddenly comes to this. So the influencer wants to listen to the people with agency to direct the people who have power to go and do something which benefits the people with agency who carry on paying the people who can influence those who are in power. And you see this in ourselves Uh, in the way that we approach um, things like diets or exercise or holidays, uh, how we can justify to ourselves incredibly quickly and how individuals can influence our choices 
of both the type of diet, the type of exercise or the type of holiday you want. In fact, the type of work that you want to undertake. And then you're back to this idea of influence by incentive where the company who has agency is actually selecting a methodology remuneration to influence you to actually change the people who have power. It's a really, the more you unpack the layers, the more you realize the complexity. Um, but the whole piece in the book was to make a point about destructive and constructive relationships. And, and we see this in all of humanity where the people with influence um, create more rules and regulations or demand them from the people of power. The people with power create more restrictions and therefore the people who have agency um, basically want to become uh, more secret because they know they will be um, more controlled. So you end up with these relationships where the agency doesn't want to actually help the influencer because the influencer is actually acting in a different party for somebody who has power. And the person with power doesn't like the level of agency that people have. And you end up with these destructive loops and particularly around regulation and laws. It's an incredibly destructive way of changing the power base. It could be really constructive, but actually most of the time it's destructive. And Tony, have you got have you got an example of that where, you know, we could put it into more sort of concrete concrete terms? Yeah, the finance industry is a, is a classic where you, you have um, the banks, the regulators and the individuals. Um, and the individuals are the only people who are losing out as the banks decide um, what they're going to do and the regulator tries to control them. Um, and Metro Bank uh, has, has gone through this issue in the last couple of weeks where the regulator said you're going to fail capital uh, adequacy test at some point, therefore go raise more money. It turns around to the market, says we want to raise more money. The market says we don't like you because you've got branches and every other bank is shutting branches down. So none of the banks want to buy you, even though there's queues outside the doors at Metro Banks because everybody still wants a branch or some people still want a branch and therefore they've moved to them. They've got the customer base. But because um, the bank, the, the central bank, the regulator is effectively saying you're going to um, fail a test that we believe is a randomly made up test, which actually looks like you can actually have sufficient capital to cover um, the basal test of, of liquidity, um, we're going to restrict you. And the market says, well, the only way to raise money is one single shareholder has gone from 8% share to owning 51% share and actually has crushed everybody else to death. So who was the winner in <laughs> this wonderful regulatory debate? Oh, a single shareholder who's poning up a bit of cash, basically now take control of a bank. And we see this all the time where the regulator has set a set of standards and those standards are not aligned to the rest of the market, but they put them in place to try and protect the public. But actually, the only person who now uses, loses is the public. And, you know, if we, if we take that example a little bit further then, so, you know, you've got people in regulation believing that they're doing the right thing. The leaders in the bank responding to that regulation trying to do respond to what they're being asked to do and then you've got different actors responding to what the bank is trying to do i'm going to challenge the first piece which is the regulator believes they're doing the right thing and that's not the regulator's job the regulator is given a mandate in policy to do something it is not asked if it's doing the right thing and neither can it challenge the mandate it's been given if it's doing the wrong thing 
it's a it's a really interesting th- aspect of regulation. So, so then if we go back to the power agency and influence, who's setting the mandate for the regulator? Uh, those between the power and the agency who are trying to determine how effectively they get better control. And sometimes the ways of aspects of getting better control uh, means the regulator steps in to try and prevent them from doing it, but becomes draconian. No regulator has been set up to, to turn around to a aspect of business and say, um, you as an aspect of business behave badly. We are going to regulate so you behave better. What they do is they say, no, we're going to create regulations to make sure that you don't get worse. And that's, it, it's, a, it's a natural form of policy in the way the regulators are actually structured and actually managed. And yes, it's a, you know, we, we, we do have an issue with the way we believe the regulator actually should regulate. And even back to, you know, the, the, the old steam engine where the regulator was to try and stop something basically getting out of control. And that's exactly what it tries to do. It is not designed to then shift it from where it was to be something better. Yeah, the fascinating thing here is that it's human beings that are making up these rules, but thinking that it's not. And one of the other chapters in the book is that whole principle that, you know, humans want something, but actually society wants something else and businesses want something else. And that's all around um, who sets the purpose, who manages the risk matrix, and who sets the rules. And quite often in um, our business environments, particularly, a new rule comes along or a new standard because that's what we have to comply to. But we don't ask the question, is that new rule or process or methodology we put in place aligned to our purpose? And because we don't do that, we drift off from what our actual purpose is because what our rules say is we're going to do something differently. But the rules are easier to implement and actually control than actually keep going back to asking the question, what is our purpose? And boards have been prevented from a very long time from asking the question, what is our purpose? Well, and it's, I mean, also the other, the other very interesting piece about the regulation is that, that it's down to interpretation. So, so, you know, quite often boards will say, well, we have to do this because the regulation says so. But in fact, the regulation doesn't prescribe how you implement it. Um, it's it's a series of of tests, and so you know it's it's that encouragement to have the people within the business to say, well, how does it make sense given our purpose to implement this regulation? Yeah, spot on, absolutely spot on. And, and we see this in you know I, I, the joys of things like Formula One, where they have this massive regulatory book um, and set of standards, and the innovation at the edges allows an advantage, and yet. If they don't like the advantage, <laughs> they, re- re- they rewrite the rule or the regulation to write out that one particular team has created an innovation, which is an unfair advantage because it's ruining the sport because actually it doesn't make it competitive. And so th- the regulation is actually written to make it competitive so it looks like everybody finishes in the same moment, not to make the best performing car. So... Is, you know, you go back to think, are you believing in doing the right thing? If the right thing is to make sure everybody gets across the line in the in one second and everybody overtakes at one point, therefore it's exciting, then that is the right thing. If your driver was to make the fastest, quickest, bestest cars, then actually you've created completely the wrong ideology. So yeah, what's what's better, entertainment or actually the advancement of technology? And that's a big question. 
about what is better and what is best. So, but the, but then you end up with this. So, one side of power, agency, and influence is destructive, and one side of power, agency, and influence is actually constructive. And so, how can the people with power effectively give more freedoms and more independence to the people of agency? Which sounds very much like you know some uh, more of the the, the capitalist based views of uh, of politics, which means that the people with agency have higher trust and increased openness and therefore more transparency. Therefore, the people who have influence can be better educated and create more rights for everybody in society. Which means the people with power can give more freedoms. Therefore, you can end up with constructive loops. The issue is that if one of those parties decides effectively to become destructive in the way that it behaves, the whole lot collapses very quickly. So we have this sort of breathing where every now and again, power agency and influence are actually constructive and every now and again, it's destructive. And we see this in politics as you, as you swip between left and right views as it breathes in and out. And it's, you know, have you got your timing aligned to what is happening within those policy frameworks, which is, again, this is why board governance and understanding these things is so critical. Because if you're not aligned to what's happening, you can be driving towards efficiency and, and effectiveness, but actually it's not what the market's driving for at the moment. So you find your outer kilter and therefore you can end up with all sorts of financial problems purely because you haven't understood the environment when you operate, which is, you know, it's old antage, but it's, it's where people... They, they, they seem to not learn. And yeah, we talked about an example on the destructive side. What's an example that you've seen on the constructive side? Some local councils, you know, they, they kind of like get it for a period of time and then, then they don't. And this is obviously local councils in the UK where effectively uh, from central government, they devolved some powers. Those powers mean that the, the local government then acts in the interests of the local community who then see that actually this is good, which then allows them to vote more for... So you end up with this, this sort of collective. And you see it uh, sometimes through the planning um, system where actually the, the planning is aligned to what the community wants and what the community wants is aligned to what the government wants and what the government's getting is enabling the local communities to get more housing and it solves a problem. Um, but it's, it's rare to see. And this is the thing, because so often there's individuals who have particular incentives and those incentives mean they believe their their own judgment skills and their own experience over actually wanting to find people to spark off and find conflict. Again, to your opening phrase, which I agree with completely, you know, we're, we're not good at conflict. We don't like it. We see it as negative, not as positive. Well, I mean, it, you know, an exa another example for me is if you if you look at the European Commission, they've put a lot of regulation in place, especially around financial markets for sustainability um, and encouraging businesses to be transparent on, you know, what they're doing about the climate, what they're doing about diversity, equity, inclusion, what they're doing about um, making a positive contribution to society and how they, you know, it, it exemplify that. Whereas obviously in the US, you've got the whole anti-environmental social governance because people think that they, you know, that investing in those types of businesses actually destroyed their financial uh, worth and, and well-being. And so you've got a whole load of states now writing this anti-legislation um, against that, um, you know, making investment decisions based on that 
on that basis, which then doesn't deal with the climate change issues, et cetera, et cetera. So it's almost like you can see the constructive and the destructive in that, in, you know, the regulator saying, look, we've got this climate change issue. Let's force everybody to disclose and be transparent. And then people may start making, you know, irrational decisions. And then you've got a whole load of legislation coming in that's destructive around that. Yep. Fear, uncertainty and doubt sales. It's one of the the fundamentals of humans, fear, uncertainty and doubt sales. And Larry Fink, um, I posted a piece out the other week. Um, he's, he's, he's basically seems to have mandated a number of his teams that the essence of ESG is really good. So it's not to lose the essence and the purpose and the understanding of ESG, but do not use the words ESG because it's become so politically divided and detrimental to, to what's actually happening. So um, as far as I understand, yeah, he's, you know, if you go back to his letters that he's been writing for a few years, and actually, oddly, when he'd started writing them, and probably that 2019 one was, was, was absolutely super, because it had an intent. And what, again, I think the simple linear narrative of ESG has done is tried to boil down complexity into something, which it wasn't. And there was an intent, are we doing the right thing? And what ESG has determined is that, you know, effectively an oil company, which we don't believe is doing the right thing, is now doing the right thing. Therein lies, I think, the fundamental that, you know, should actually an a oil company be able to have an ESG statement at all? And it's a re- these are the questions we don't like because we want democracy and therefore everybody to have the same. And, I, you know, it comes back to the conflict point, doesn't it? It's, you know, it's you've got a whole industry that has basically fueled the progress of society and you've got, you know, literally thousands of people that make their living from that on a day-to-day basis and it's something that's not going to go away for a very long time and there is a you know compassion that's needed for those people to help them transition to the new future um and you know there's a whole load of ego power (laughs) caught up in that around well you know how does that happen and you know what 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 does that look like um and again it's that point of well we could get really raging about that um and say well these are the people that have destroyed the future for future generations or we could get passionate about it and say well you know how do we help speed up this transition what does that look like how does that happen totally agree brilliant I'll, I'll, I'll add one further, which is, it's democracy is a lie in the in the framing of sustainability, and the reason democracy is a lie in the framing of sustainability, sustainability needs you exactly what you said, Julia, to act in the incredibly long term. So you need to be acting in fifty to hundred years. Democracy, people are going to be voted back in this year, next year, for four years time, and therefore they have to come up with policies which affect people today and for the next four years. And there isn't anything on the planet which is in sustainability, which is today. And therefore, we have this, we have a way of providing power to individuals to take office, which is not supporting anything that we need to do in the long term. So democracy is fundamentally broken through the lens of the idea of how do we make a more sustainable planet? 
Well, and as you said earlier, you and I are starting the pledge here and now to get rid of the word sustainability. <laughs> as as we as we we don't want to sustain what we've currently got. We want to generate we want to generate something new. We want to have generative leaders. We want to have generative, you know, gen- generative in nature that is going to be the 50 100 year view not to sustain the the status quo yeah i don't want yeah it's it's one of the that's another issue of sustainability is a lie which it absolutely is but it's the democracy piece which is really interesting for us um where you know we we actually don't have a choice but to go through democratic voting and therefore we are taken down a path that we have to elect somebody who is effectively going to market to people who will enough people who will get them into office so they have power based on whatever process they can. And therefore, unless the entirety of the population decides that sustainability is important, we're kind of like stuck. And I don't know how to break that problem today. Um, And if somebody tells me how to support them in that process, I will just get behind them. You You heard it here first. If you didn't know already, (laughs) democracy is dead. Well, and and I think we're seeing it, aren't we? You know, we've we've not been able to form a government here in the UK. There's been a lot of issues in the US. um, And, uh, you know, the the European uh, system, you know, maybe it's just become outdated. Maybe this power agency influence, um, you know, peace is not working for us anymore. Uh, Yeah. Um, one of the other chapters in the book, I talk about this. The, the, um, the issues are in the S curve, but the S curve is redrawn as um, certainty of outcome and ubiquity. And as you go up the S curve, you go from innovative, bright idea to commodity. But um, all of that is about is what matters is the transitions, because that's where things break. And if you look at democracy, actually, all it was is another transitional methodology of governance over a period of time. And we probably are starting to see the transition to something new. I don't know what the new is, but it's got to emerge um, if we're going to be in a better place. Now, it doesn't mean that the end game is going to be the next thing. And it doesn't mean what we had before us wasn't great. What it means is what we're living through right now is not fit for where we are going in the future. And that's just a recognition of change not that actually there's any right or wrong to it. Well, no, that's the other thing as human beings we love to do, isn't it? We love to say, well, this is good, this is bad, and judge that. Um, whereas if we if we sort of evolve to a much more neutral state of, uh, you know, being able to see that there are different choices for different moments with a different context, um, that we might be able to hold that a little bit more lightly. But then where does anger come in and that passion? Because actually, we kind of like something to disagree with such that we can go and change it and actually have that focus. So, yeah, the joy of this is that generative leadership and everything you've been exploring through this entire series wrestles with these questions because there's nothing easy about it. And it's actually, we need more time to wrestle it. So I actually love what you're doing because it helps me wrestle with it. So my support is please keep doing this because I love them. Wonderful. Well, Tony... Thank you so much for your time today. And I know that we could do probably a podcast on the, how many chapters in the book? 10 chapters. 
10 chapters. So that could be a 10 podcast uh, series that would love to keep exploring with you, especially when the book is actually out and people can look at it in turn. So thank you so much for your time today, Tony. Thank you, Julia. What a fascinating conversation with Tony. And he's certainly been looking to really unpack these words and find out what their meaning is. There's so many opposing forces. I'm wondering if you can think of your own examples of seeking power, agency and influence. And I took away for me to think about in my own sphere of life, how I can discern the different actors and if the relationships are destructive or constructive. It's certainly been one that I've been reflecting on and it's not always easy to unpack. The other area to think about is what insights that reflection might have you move from destructive to constructive in your relationships. If you've enjoyed this episode and you think someone else would too, please feel free to share it. You can do that at generativeleaders.co or on any podcast platform that you choose to listen to. Thanks for listening and look forward to seeing you next time on Generative Leaders.